Chapter 3 Rules for Delegating Authority We delegate almost to the point of abdication. Warren Buffett Warren learned that to run and grow a business, one must learn the art of delegating authority. The natural inclination is to try and control every event and the people involved, to micromanage the task, the venture, the business. But micromanaging too many tasks or businesses leads to too many balls in the air at once, and if you drop one, you drop them all. Micromanaging leads to neglect. Whereas delegating to a competent manager who is focused on just one job means a more thorough understanding of the task and a more careful execution of the job. Warren owns more than 88 diverse businesses, and he has turned over the management of these companies to 88 highly competent CEO managers. Berkshire companies like John's Manville, Benjamin Moore, Fruit of the Loom, Clayton Homes, and Jordan's Furniture are all run by CEOs who have complete control over the businesses. When Berkshire bought Forest River, Warren told its founder and CEO, Peter Legal, not to expect to hear from him more than once a year. Warren even goes so far as to tell the CEOs of Berkshire's companies not to write up anything special for him. When McLean Company CEO Grady Rosier phoned him to request approval to buy a couple of new company jets, Warren replied, That's your decision. It's your company to run. Warren feels it would be sheer folly on his part to think he could competently manage each and every one of these businesses himself. To get the job competently done, Warren delegates, not just a task, but the entire job. As he says, he delegates almost to the point of abdication. Warren has developed a set of rules to help him delegate successfully. Rule number one. Every business culture is unique. From the smallest of firms to the largest of corporations, workers and managers have developed highly specialized skill sets that allow them to accomplish their tasks. As a manager, Warren has learned that he cannot perform these highly specialized skill sets even remotely as well as they can. He feels that his employees are the experts and should be allowed to do what they are good at doing without his interference. He also feels that if he has any job as a manager, it is to inspire his employees to greatness at their jobs. Think cheerleader, not slave driver. Rule number two. Warren has discovered that competent managers like to be left alone to run their businesses as they see fit. Warren encourages his managers to continue to think of their businesses as their own. The result is they work harder and make sure that the business does well. For them, it's a matter of pride. Rule number three. Warren realizes that in order for complete delegation of authority to work, it is necessary not only that the managers be hardworking, passionate, and intelligent about their businesses, they must also have a great deal of integrity.
In other words, they must be as honest as the day is long. If they are not honest, they just might end up using their hard-working, passionate, and intelligent ways to rob us blind. In Summary Warren's rules of delegation are fairly simple. Each and every business is unique. Your employees are better at doing their individual jobs than you are. If we want the business to grow, we must delegate authority. Managers like to be left alone to run their businesses. And the managers we hire need to be hardworking, intelligent, and most important, honest. Or, as the late great Berkshire manager, Mrs. B, once said regarding the secret to her success in the furniture business, sell cheap and tell the truth. Step 3. Find the right manager for the job. Once the right business is found or acquired and the need for delegation understood, the next job is to hire the right manager. For Warren, the characteristics of the right manager just happen to be the managerial qualities that we should cultivate in ourselves. Let's take a look at just what those characteristics are. Chapter 4 Where Warren Starts His Search for the Right Manager Management changes, like marital changes, are painful, time-consuming, and chancy. Warren Buffett This is a lesson that Warren learned the hard way. By buying businesses that were available at a bargain price, but were poorly run. His early investment in Dempster Mills Manufacturing, which we'll discuss in just a minute, is the perfect example of having to replace management several times before finding the right manager. Was it painful? Yes. Was it time-consuming? Yes. Was it expensive? Very. Was it necessary? Most definitely. The key to making managerial changes is to ask, is it absolutely necessary? If the answer is no, we are out of our minds to risk financial ruin by bringing in someone completely new to take over. But if the business is losing money and we think that it is due to the manager and not to the underlying economics of the business, then it is definitely time for a change in management. Warren tries to avoid managerial changes. When he advertises for new companies to buy through investment bankers or his annual letter to Berkshire shareholders, he insists that the business come with competent management already in place. He requires the key managers of each of the companies he owns to write him a letter telling him who in the company would succeed them if they were to die tomorrow. These letters are updated each year. This way, if something does happen to one of his managers, time won't be wasted in trying to find a replacement. Warren gets a manager who is already familiar with the business and was hand-chosen by the person who best understood the company, its people, products, and customers. If Warren has to look outside a company for a manager, he usually turns to people he has already worked with, who have a proven track record. Or, 
he will ask his business associates for a recommendation. This brings us to the short but remarkable story of Dempster Mills Manufacturing and the remarkable Harry Bottle. Dempster Mills Manufacturing was a windmill and water irrigation company in Nebraska that Warren bought in two because the stock was selling at 25% of its book value. Once he had stock in the company and had taken a seat on its board of directors, he realized that the reason that the company wasn't doing very well was that it was poorly managed. So he convinced the board members to bring in a new manager, whom they chose. The new manager proved to be even more of a disaster than the manager they had replaced. In desperation, Warren turned to his friend and counsel, Charlie Munger. He asked if Charlie knew of any managerial talent who could save the day. Charlie suggested the name of a man whom Warren would later refer to as the remarkable Harry Bottle. Harry was what is known as a turnaround artist, a manager remarkably skilled at fixing failing businesses. At Warren's invitation and for a $50,000 signing bonus, Harry moved from warm, sunny California to bitterly cold Nebraska, where he stepped in as the new CEO of Dempster. The first thing Harry did was reprice the inventory of spare and replacement parts. Dempster's products needed constant upkeep, which meant that the company did a big business in replacement parts. Some of the parts that Dempster used could be bought at any hardware store, but some were unique to Dempster and couldn't be bought anywhere else. One of the errors that Harry discovered was that Dempster had been marking up all of its parts at the standard 40%, both the common and unique ones. Harry tripled the price of the unique parts that Dempster had a monopoly on and cut back on the inventory levels of the common parts thereby increasing revenues and freeing up capital. By year's end, Dempster was back in the black and on its way to becoming one of Warren's winning investments. Twenty years later, Warren had another managerial problem with one of Berkshire Hathaway's smaller manufacturing businesses, and guess who he called? The remarkable Harry Bottle, of course. The lesson here is this. Change managers only when necessary. Promote from within if possible. And if you can't, look for talent with a proven track record. When all else fails, call in the remarkable Harry Bottle. Chapter 5. Victor or Victim. Warren's Secret for Picking a Leader Out of the Pack. Would you rather be the world's greatest lover and have everyone think that you are the world's worst lover? Or would you rather be the world's worst lover and have everyone think that you are the world's best lover? Warren Buffett Warren theorizes that all people have either an inner or outer scorecard. We are true to ourselves or we conform to what we think the world wishes us to be. A true leader follows the beat of his or her own drummer, while a bureaucrat bends to the perceived wishes of others. It is hard to stand alone when the winds of popular opinion are against you. 
Warren's ability to do this has made him super rich. He buys stocks when everyone else is afraid and sells when everyone else is enthusiastic. He has spent his life going against the herd. Free and independent thinkers like Warren Buffett are never victims. They are masters of their own destiny. In discussing the difference between victor and victim mentality, psychologists talk about the locus of control. If you have an internal locus of control, you blame yourself when something goes wrong. You believe that you are in control of your fate and that you have control of the outcome. And if you fail, it's because of your own actions and no one else's. But if you have an external locus of control and something goes wrong, you blame everyone but yourself. As a young man, Warren was deeply influenced by his father, Howard, who had a strong internal locus of control. When the Great Depression hit, Howard started a successful new business. When he disagreed with what was going on in government, he got himself elected to Congress. This taught Warren that he, not the world, was in control of his life and that he, not the world, would determine what his life would look like. Having an internal locus of control is not always easy. When you win, it was you who won it. But when you lose, it was you who lost it. There is no scapegoat, no one other than yourself to blame, which can be crushing. Warren's failed investments in two Irish banks and his overpayment for ConocoPhillips are his failures and his alone, and he learned from them, but he makes a special point not to dwell on his failures for too long. By not dwelling on them, he avoids the crippling effect that failure can bring to someone with an internal locus of control. The great lesson here is this. People with an internal locus of control take responsibility for their failures and in the process learn from their mistakes. They are in control of themselves. They are in control of their world. They see problems as challenges to be conquered. Think Bill Gates. People with external locus of control don't believe that they have the power to solve their problems. They believe that they are the victims of circumstances that are beyond their control. Think Wall Street. Which view do you think leads to riches and greatness? Which type of person would have the strength to lead a company or nation through hard times? Are we victor or victim? Victors make great managers and leaders because they can take responsibility and solve problems. Victims, on the other hand, are too busy inventing excuses and blaming the world to take up challenges and solve problems. Chapter 6. Work at a Job You Love There comes a time when you ought to start doing what you want. Take a job that you love. You will jump out of bed in the morning. I think you are out of your mind if you keep taking jobs that you don't like because you think it will look good on your resume. Isn't that a little like saving up sex for your old age? Warren Buffett In the quest for wealth, we often end up in jobs or professions that we don't like, but we stay at them day after day, 
year after year, until finally we have run out of time. We delude ourselves into believing that a day will come when we will finally do what we dream of doing. Meantime, we spend a life in misery, which we bring home with us each day to share with our loved ones. This type of suffering in the name of a buck usually starts early in life and is often predicated on need. However, sometimes its foundation is nothing more than greed. Warren believes that not doing what we love in the name of greed is a very poor management of our lives. It makes work drudgery, which drags us down and destroys our spirit. And though we may be making a lot of money, the nine-plus hours we are at work, we are miserable. In the world of business, the people who are most successful are those who are doing what they love. Money isn't what drives them. What drives them is the same thing that drives a great ball player or a great musician, a love of what they do. Be it a computer programmer, a salesman, a carpenter, a nurse, a butcher, a chef, a policeman, a doctor, or a lawyer. The people who rise to the top are those who love what they do. And they are usually the people who make the most money in their profession. Loving what you do and earning good money almost always go hand in hand. Warren believes that when we employ people to work for us, we must try to find people who are going to love what we hired them to do. These are the people who will take pride in their work, inspire their fellow workers to greatness, and become the driving force behind the business. They are also the people who have made men like Warren look like geniuses. In the management of our lives, the rule is, love what you do. In the management of our business, the rule is, hire people who love what they do. Both will lead you to the gold. Chapter 7. Put a Winning Sales Team Together I don't want to be on the other side of the table from the customer. I was never selling anything that I didn't believe in myself or use myself. Warren Buffett Warren learned early on that the best salespeople are those who believe in their products, who have a passion for the products that they are selling. If someone believes in and has a passion for the products he is selling, you can bet that he is very interested in everything about that product, from the material it's made of, to how it's manufactured, to what are its best uses. Even more important, the salesperson will know the best uses of the product. Such knowledge impresses any customer. This is a quality that Warren is looking for in his managers. People who believe in their products and businesses so much that they love to go to work. He doesn't like hiring managers who are only interested in making money and who would rather be somewhere else. Many of Warren's top managers have spent the vast majority of their working lives at the same company and continue working for them even though they are millionaires many times over. Publisher Stan Lipsy of the Buffalo News has been with the company for over 30 years. CEO Irv Blumkin, now in his 50s, has been on the payroll of the Nebraska Furniture Mart since he was a teenager. 
Both of these supermanagers are wealthy enough to retire in the morning, but they keep showing up to work, and the reason? They love what they do. The lesson here is this. If we want to put a winning sales team together, we must find people who believe in and are passionate about the products that we are asking them to sell. A salesman's passion for the products he is selling is something that Warren has learned he can bank on. Chapter 8. Obsession. Our prototype for occupational fervor is the Catholic tailor who used his small savings of many years to finance a pilgrimage to the Vatican. When he returned, his parish held a special meeting to get his first-hand account of the Pope. Tell us, said the eager faithful, just what sort of fellow is he? Our hero wasted no words. He's a 44 medium. Warren Buffett In Warren's world, the perfect manager is someone who gets up in the morning thinking about the business and at night is dreaming about the business. As he says, obsession is the price for perfection. Warren's obsession led him to memorize Moody's stock manual, starting at A and working his way through Z. One of his favorite all-time investors was a guy with very little education who became so obsessed with water companies that he could tell you how much money they made every time someone flushed the toilet. Guess what that guy made his millions investing in? Water companies, of course. And it is obsession that Warren is looking for in his employees. He once said, that if he could ask only one question of his interviewees for a job at Berkshire, it would be how obsessed they are with what they do. His archetype of the perfect manager was the famous Mrs. B, who started and managed the Nebraska Furniture Mart with her family until she reached the ripe old age of 104. There was no keeping the old girl away from the store, which was the love of her life. In the 60-plus years she ran the business, she took only one vacation and was miserable the entire time because she was away from her store. She said that when she went home at night, she couldn't wait for morning so she could get back to her customers. Her only hobby was driving around Omaha, checking on the competition. All of Warren's top managers are men and women obsessed. Tony Nicely, CEO of GEICO has worked for the company since 1961, and has no idea what he'd do if he ever retired. Talking about A.L. Yulchi, founder and chairman of Flight Safety, Warren said, Al understood what I was about. I understood what Flight Safety was all about and could tell that he loved the business. The first question I always ask myself about somebody in his position is, do they love the money or do they love the business? But with Al, the money is totally secondary. He loves the business and that's what I need because the day after I buy a company, if they only love the money, they're gone. A simple question that Warren uses to determine a manager's passion for the business is to find out about their early drive to be in business. He says that we can tell more about how successful a manager is going to be by whether or not 
he or she had a lemonade stand as a child than by where they went to college. An early love of being in business equates later in life to being successful in business. In Warren's world, it is not so much how smart we are as it is how obsessed we are, how much we love what we are doing. If we happen to be smart too, well, that is just icing on the obsessively delicious cake. Chapter 9, The Power of Honesty We also believe candor benefits us as managers. The CEO who misleads others in public may eventually mislead himself in private. Warren Buffett Warren says that a manager or an employee who is truthful with others about his mistakes is more likely to learn from them. When a manager or employee ignores his mistakes or is always trying to blame someone or something else for his own blunders, then he will more likely lie to himself about other important things as well. Warren has found this to be especially true in all matters of accounting and believes that a willingness to fuddle with one set of numbers will eventually lead to a willingness to misrepresent all the numbers. Or, as Warren says, managers who always promise to make the numbers will at some point be tempted to make up the numbers. Warren has an underlying theme of truthfulness in his personal and business lives that he describes as one of the key character traits to aspire to. As he says, you don't want to be in business with people who need a contract to be motivated to perform. In the world of business, a manager who is as honest as the day is long is money that is already in the bank. Chapter 10. Manage Costs The really good business manager doesn't wake up in the morning and say, this is the day that I'm going to cut costs, any more than he wakes up and decides to practice breathing. Warren Buffett Profit is the lifeblood of a business. Lack of profit is the death of a business. The only way to make a profit in business is to have lower costs than the prices you are charging for the products that you sell. The difference between the two is called a profit margin. There is no other way to make money, no other equation. You either make a profit or you don't. And if you don't make a profit, you won't stay in business very long. If you make a lot of profit, you can do more than just make a living. You can become rich. As managers of business, we have two main goals. Inspire our sales force to sell as much of the product as possible at the highest possible price. And inspire our manufacturing and buying teams to produce or acquire the products we sell at the lowest possible prices. It takes two to tango, and it takes two to make a profit. The task of keeping costs low is the most important because it determines the pricing of the product. Lower costs mean that we can sell the product at a lower price, which will make the product more desirable and easier to sell. 
The way to determine whether your managers are going to be cost conscious is to look at how they handle the seemingly little costs. Warren says, if managers aren't disciplined on the little things, they will probably be undisciplined on the large things as well. He likes to tell the story of Benjamin Rosner, the owner of Associated Cotton Shops, who was so fanatical about keeping costs low that he once counted the sheets on a roll of toilet paper to make sure that his vendor wasn't cheating him. Warren also likes to tell about Tom Murphy, CEO of Capital Cities Communications, who was so cost-conscious that when he had his office building painted, he didn't paint the back wall because no one would see it. Tom considered public relations and legal departments to be frivolous expenses. He figured that if and when these services were needed, freelancers could be hired at a fraction of the cost. And when he merged Capital Cities with the ABC television network, the first thing he got rid of was ABC's private dining room. Warren loved Tom. Another aspect of the cost-cutting equation deals with personal savings. If we are in a 40% tax bracket, we have to earn $10 to have $6 to spend. So if we reduce our living costs by $6, it is actually the same as making $10 and getting to save $6 of it, which can then be invested. As Benjamin Franklin said, if you know how to spend less than you get, you have the Philosopher's Stone. The Philosopher's Stone was a tool alchemists used to turn lead into gold. In the early part of Warren's life, he was fanatical about keeping his living costs low which is why he drove an old VW Beetle long after he became a multimillionaire. The money he had saved driving a cheap car gave him more money to invest to make himself even richer. The bottom line here is this. When Warren looks for a manager, he wants someone who is cost-conscious as a way of life, not just when the business is starting to fail. Cutting costs is the fastest and easiest way to increase the bottom line of both our businesses and our personal fortunes, which means that it is the easiest way to get rich. And easy is always a good thing when it comes to making money. Chapter 11. Have an Eye for the Long Term. There's really a lot of overlap between managing and investing. Being a manager has made me a better investor, and being an investor has made me a better manager. Warren Buffett Warren is a long-term investor. His favorite holding period for companies with exceptional economics working in their favor is forever. This long-term perspective is the fountain that produced his great wealth. But most managers of businesses tend to have a time horizon of under a year. They live in a world defined by quarterly and yearly results. If they surpass quarterly or yearly projections, they'll get fat bonuses and promotions. Fail to bring in quarterly or yearly projections and head start to roll. This tends to keep management focused on the short term. 
The short-term focus almost kills any long-term planning on the part of management. Managers are driven to make the short-term numbers at the cost of long-term planning. They often have no plans to exploit future opportunities, nor do they plan ahead for a potential recession. This is reactive management as opposed to the proactive management that Warren practices. Warren learned from investing that the long-term perspective that had served him so well personally would also serve him well in businesses. One of the first things that Warren asks his managers to do when they join his firm is to stop worrying about the short-term ups and downs of the business and focus on making the business strong and viable for the long term. Another lesson that Warren learned is that any management's intense focus on the short term tends to make those managers poor allocators of capital, which creates two very big problems. The first is that management may keep throwing good money after a mediocre business long after it's time to put that capital to use elsewhere. The second is that when management tries to allocate capital outside its core business, it almost always ends up buying a short-sighted promise of prosperity at an inflated price. Warren often cites Coca-Cola's failed venture into the movie business as a perfect example of a great business throwing money after a bad one. When Warren bought into Berkshire Hathaway, it was a mediocre business that was spending more money than it was earning in a desperate attempt to compete with foreign textile manufacturers. After Warren acquired control, he had the insight to see that it was a dying business, so he stopped spending Berkshire's working capital on the textile business and used it to acquire an insurance company, which is a better business from a long-term perspective. How did he know that that textile business wasn't going to make it and that insurance was going to be the better business. Warren had spent a great amount of time studying a large number of businesses and knew what a great long-term business looked like. This is also how he knew that the textile company was a lousy business and that no matter how much money he threw at it, its underlying economics would never improve. Eventually, Berkshire had to close its textile operations, but by then, its insurance operations were well on their way to helping Berkshire blossom into the financial powerhouse that it is today. The managers who ran Berkshire's textile operations would have spent the company's last dime trying to stay competitive with foreign manufacturers. It was lucky for Berkshire shareholders that Warren had the clarity of vision to see what the future of the textile business looked like and the foresight to invest the company's working capital in a company that had far better long-term prospects. Ultimately, Warren learned when he looks for a great manager, he is also looking for a great investor, whose responsibility is to invest the firm's money in people, products, and new businesses always with the long-term perspective in mind.